You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Well, in our next section here in the book of James, James wants to write to us about our interaction with other people. You know, up to this point, we've really dealt with our reaction to trials and our interaction with the self in a lot of ways, how we handle trials, how we handle temptation. And then we've dealt with, in one sense, our interaction with God himself as we interact with his word, as he speaks to us when we look into the perfect law of liberty, when we consider it deeply, when we are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, we put away filth and ungodliness from our lives and we receive with meekness the implanted word uh, and we persevere in obeying it, there are these wonderful things that happen in our lives. You know, we gain self-control over speech. We uh, end up caring for orphans and widows and their affliction. We uh, live uh, holy lives, godly lives. So really, in one sense, uh, James has dealt with our interaction with the self, but also our interaction with God as we interact with his word. But here in chapter two now, we move into a section where James begins to deal with our interaction with others, especially others inside the body of Christ. And of course, we understand and know, really without even knowing much as believers, that God has asked us to be a group of people who are loving to other Christians. It's just the stance that we're to take. Jesus Christ loved us. He laid his life down for us. We're to love others and love those that he has laid his life down for. Uh, and this is one of the, the deeper lessons of the Christian life, I think. I mean, we, we know in, intellectually and within our minds that we're to be loving towards others. But often this is something that takes years for us to really, truly, and deeply learn and discover. And the second that we learn how to love one group or one particular person, God will present us with someone else whom we have a difficulty loving and our love needs to expand, our heart needs to grow. I, I remember early on in my ministry life, I had really, you know, it was from the Lord. It was definitely not natural from me, but I had just a real easy time loving uh, high school students. I had not done well during my high school years. I had a deep passion for them, a care for them, a concern for them. But for some reason, and this was very early on in my Christian life, so my early 20s, and for some reason, I really didn't like ministering to people who were in my age category. And uh, at one point, I was actually given leadership of a small little college and career group and ministry. And, and there was just this thing inside my heart. I wanted to have nothing to do with it. I really didn't. And, you know, to the point where, you know, I would actually root against it. And God had to get inside my heart and rebuke me, correct me, change me, and show me that I was being an incredibly partial person, loving high school students with fervor, but really in one sense, snubbing this whole other group of people that God was giving me an opportunity to minister to. And so the Lord wants to grow us. It's human nature to play favorites. 
uh, and to hold prejudices and to judge by outward appearances. But Christians, we're called to live a higher life. And so James is writing to us in this epistle all about faith. And what does faith do? Well, one thing it does is it enables us to love and extend mercy to all people and to ditch so much of the partiality that's found in the world. I mean, that's what the world does. That's what the natural man does. We are naturally born partial to certain people and against other people. And so James here is going to show us how faith impartially loves within the body of Christ. And he's going to show us how to go through this process and learn how to love uh, without partiality. The first thing that we notice there is the exhortation, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, just think for a second about the word partiality. Uh, it's really just one exhortation James is giving us here. Don't show any of that partiality as you hold the faith. You can't hold partiality and faith at the same time. And now the word partiality comes from two words mashed together. The first word meaning face, countenance, the front of anything. The second word meaning to receive or apprehend with the senses. So when you combine those two words together to come to this Greek word for partiality, you have to observe or receive based on the front or face value. And this is so often what we do. We see something. We don't see all of it. We don't see the deepest parts of a person. We don't see the background of a person, the history of a person. We don't see the abuse they've experienced. We don't see the uh, education they received. We don't see the backstory of a person. We don't see the motivation of their heart. We don't see that. We see something that's on the front, the face of, the countenance of something. And partiality means that when we see that with our senses, our emotions, our feelings, we make a decision about what we're seeing based on what we feel, based on our emotions. We all do this. And according to James, it's wrong. We're not to show that partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. How do you do this? Well, number one, you just have to remember Jesus. I think that's what James was doing in verse one when he said, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James was an expert in showing partiality in his life historically. He grew up in the home that Jesus grew up in. He was Jesus's younger brother. He had ridiculed Jesus during his adult life. It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that James realized that he really was the son of God and God the son. He had been partial. He had seen the humble carpenter. He had seen the lowly household there in Nazareth. He had seen all of these things and assumed that you can't look like that and at the same time be the Messiah. But James says here in verse 1, actually Jesus, he's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of glory. He's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so when you remember Jesus, it really helps crush a lot of impartiality that you might naturally feel or experience. To remember 
that he, even though he appeared humble, is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To remember his disciples, that he selected a humble crew, seven of which were fishermen, uh, referred to as uneducated and untrained men in Acts 4, verse 13. You remember his interactions with others. He didn't give select treatment to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the political leaders, or the rich young ruler. No, he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and the humble people. You remember his church. That when Peter, when he went into Cornelius' house and saw them receive the gospel, these Gentile people, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Remember Jesus. Number two, you see in verse two, he gives an example or an illustration. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is a hypothetical situation that James is pointing out. And it's interesting because he goes right after the category that we often really do uh, make distinctions and judgments and show partiality in when it comes to the kind of wealth that a person has. And, you know, it's one of the most difficult places to make a judgment as well. You could see someone who looks poor but is actually very wealthy, someone that looks wealthy but has actually leveraged themselves into poverty. But really, in a lot of senses, we are often very critical regarding poverty specifically. We say things like, it's your fault that you're that way, or God isn't blessing you, or you're not as important as I am. And so this is an important hypothetical situation because it's a real situation that would occur in our own lives. He says, these two men come into the assembly. You say to the rich man, hey, listen, you, you come, you, you sit in a good place. But then another man who's poor with the shabby clothing, you say to him, stand here or sit at my feet. You know, these are poor positions James is alluding to. He says, when you do that, you've made distinctions and are among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And what he's saying there is, and that's a preposterous occupation for a human being to fulfill. We should not make distinctions. We should not become those judges. I think the second thing that I would say, just as a way to develop an impartial kind of love, number one, I said, remember Jesus. But number two, uh, know your own limitations. Know your own limitations. The truth is we're horrible at judging others. It's just not something that we're uh, good at. Uh, you might say silly things like, well, I've got the gift of discernment. And there is a spiritual gift of the discerning of spirits. But that's a spiritual gift set aside for certain moments and certain times. It doesn't mean that you have the ability to peer into the heart of every single person that crosses your path, that you know the intentions of the person who just cut you off in traffic. You don't know those things naturally. And I think Samuel is a great example of this. 
God himself holds Samuel in very high esteem. He's thrown into a category with Moses in Jeremiah 15, verse 1. Looking back on Israel's history, Moses and Samuel stand together. Men of prayer, men who sought the Lord, men in tune with the Spirit of God. And of course, there was a moment in Samuel's life when he was leading the nation of Israel that the people came to him and said, uh, we want a king like all the other nations around us to rule over us. Your sons are evil, so give us a king. He lamented it for a moment, but God said, they had him, haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Give them the king that they desire. God selected Saul. The people selected Saul. He was head and shoulders above everyone else, a very handsome man. I think it was God's way of showing the people that appearances are not all that they seem to be because Saul ended up being an incredible failure. And God said, I've now rejected him and I've selected for myself someone who has a heart like mine. Apparently that man would be found in the house of Jesse. God sent Samuel, the aging prophet, to Jesse's home. Jesse gathered his sons together, all of his sons, Samuel thought. The first son came forward, Eliab. And Samuel said, or thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So even Samuel, in all of his wisdom, in all of his godliness, in all of his insight, in all of his prayer, even Samuel was baffled by the selection of the next king in Israel. He assumed this would be the man, and apparently even Samuel was caught in the trap of looking at his appearance his, and his height and assuming this would be the man. And on and on, we could go throughout Scripture, finding times where God's people, God's men made decisions where they should not have made those decisions, things that they just could not figure out. You need to know your limitations. You're not good at making those distinctions. Even the disciples, when Jesus said, the one that will betray me is the one that I give the morsel of bread when I've dipped it. He then dipped the morsel, gave it to Judas. After he took the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. It seems very clear reading it that the reason Jesus said it is because Judas was the guy that would betray him. But that, that fact escaped the disciples. They still didn't see it. Somehow, someway, they looked at Judas and they just saw a good man. They didn't see the wickedness that was brewing inside of his heart. So we are horrible when it comes to making distinctions. Understand and know your limitations, number two. Now, a third thing that we're supposed to do in cultivating this impartial love, according to James, is found in verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, in one sense, James is just delivering a, an incredibly encouraging word 
to any faithful believer who has found themselves in poverty in this present life. Because what he says here is that, listen, there are those who are poor in this world, believers, who will also at the same time be rich in faith. So here in this life, they have the potential of being very deep in faith, rich in faith, strong in faith, do great exploits of faith. But at the same time, they will be heirs or are heirs of the kingdom. So a comforting word there from James, in one sense, saying to all of the poor believers inside the body of Christ, this is the only moment in your life when you will be poor. Perhaps the Lord will provide for you here in a way that lifts you out of your poverty. But regardless, when you enter into the next life, you're an heir of the kingdom. You're going to a place where you will not experience any poverty whatsoever for the rest of your eternal life. You will be richly blessed and provided for. But as he says this, there's a consideration that we need to make. We need to consider the ways of God. He says, listen, has God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Another way to help in our uh, combat partiality is to consider God's ways. Consider that God has always been one to minister to the lowly. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 113. He's the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68. So God is always looking out for and looking to use and minister to and through in a lot of ways, the humble, the humble of this world, the humble of this life. You might remember Naaman there who came to a place in his life where he needed to be healed of his leprosy. He went to the prophet seeking um, healing and was told to dip in the Jordan River seven times. He was a proud Syrian. To him, the Jordan River was a dirty, insignificant river. He was ready to walk away until he was talked into it by a servant of his. He came back, humbled himself, and received the blessing of God. The blessing of God was there, but he had to access it through humility. And God is looking for those who in many senses are spiritually humble, but also many times those who are naturally humbled have a spiritual humility that comes upon them. Not It's not a rule of thumb or anything like that, but there are times where being brought low physically will bring someone low spiritually and God can work with people like that. And when you consider the ways of God, you consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God is always thinking about and interested in and working amongst those who are poor in this world. That's what James wants us to consider. Now, James also wants us in the process of especially this kind of impartiality where we uh, favor the rich and consider them to be above those who are poor. 
He says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James here asks these believers to make a consideration. He says, listen, think about it for a second. These were a persecuted people, by the way. You remember that in verse 1, James tells us that he's writing to Jewish believers who have been dispersed, scattered, more than likely scattered because of persecution. And here we learn that there were those who were oppressing them, dragging them into court, blaspheming the honorable name by which they were called. James asks them the question, who is it that did that to you? Are they not the rich? Are not they the ones who blaspheme and oppress and drag you into court? James wants them to stop and think. And when you stop and think about the source of persecution and so much of the hostility against the body of Christ over the decades and centuries, the conclusion you have to come to is that so often it is funded, it is advanced by those who are in the wealthy establishment, whether it's in the you know, entertainment industry, high academia, the political realm, so often they are the ones that are engaged in active persecution of the church. Those who are in poverty, their focus is on getting out of poverty. Uh, They don't have the time or the means to bring that persecution down upon the church in the same kind of way that those who have the time and the wealth resources to do so are able to do. And when you read the book of Acts, especially, you discover that whenever there was a wave of persecution, you would find priests, captains, religious leaders, uh, political parties, uh, councils, elders, scribes, kings, uh, governors, friends of proconsuls, proconsuls, devout women of high standing, leading men of various cities, rulers, magistrates, business owners, city authorities, major businessmen, Roman leaders. You, as you read the book of Acts, discover these are the people who were behind so much of the persecution. And I think, it, I think in one sense, this has a modern application to us as well, in the sense that so often we admire and idolize the very things that are so anti-Christ. And I think James is holding that out to them, saying, listen, watch out for what you are and who you are looking up to. If you really fulfill, verse 8, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So he introduces now this concept of the royal law. And we would say, well, what is that? He says, well, it's according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you do that, You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he said, for he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, I love James here because he says a couple of things that are so searching. Number one, notice that he tells us that uh, one great measurement for how we're doing in our life with the Lord, our spiritual maturity, 
is to judge ourselves by the standard, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you fulfill that, you are doing well. Love of others is a great indicator of our spiritual health, vitality, and maturity. And that's wonderful because uh, so many times we measure spiritual health and vitality by things that really can only be accrued over time. Uh, biblical knowledge, <clears throat> church attendance, ministries launched and started and being involved with some kind of track record. But on day one, as a Christian, you can outlove someone who's been in Christ for 40 years. So it's really a daily thing of how's my love? How's my love? Because James says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But then beyond that, I love secondly that James here says, uh, if you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you become accountable for all of it. And then he points out, he says, you know, God said don't commit adultery, but he also said don't murder. So if you do commit adultery uh, but do, or do not commit adultery but do murder, you've broken the law. Now, I like this because as we're humming along in this section, we might be saying to ourselves, well, you know, impartiality, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Well, here's James. He says, well, you know, the way to combat impartiality is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law above all laws, uh, including adultery and murder. And he puts these real serious crimes and sins, things that we would naturally think of as things that, you know, you wouldn't just walk up to someone and say, you know, I'm a murderer or I'm an adulterer. That takes a little bit of guts to admit. But to say, you know, I've been a little partial I've shown favoritism and I, you know, I've judged based on the external. That's a little bit easier for us to digest. But James says, no, it's a very serious thing. Instead, please the Lord by loving others. So speak, verse 12, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. A great way to kill impartiality in your life is to expect that there is a measurement that will be used upon your life. There will be a judgment that you, as a believer even, will enter into. Paul believed that, 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He said that on the heels of saying, whether I'm present in the body or absent, I make it my aim to always be well-pleasing to the Lord. Why do you want to do that, Paul? Well, because a day is coming that I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So expect to be judged. What will we be judged by on that day? Well, James indicates, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That law that says, love your neighbor as yourself, expect yourself to be judged by that. Now, sometimes we set the standard so low, but to expect that our lives will be held up against the measurement of love for the people around us, that really, I think, changes the game in a lot of ways and helps crush so much of the partiality that is natural to us. Now, you might at this point feel like you're in need of a little bit of mercy. You know, oh man, on that day, I know there will be so many things that I've been selfish over. He says, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Here's the good news for all of us. If on that day you think you'll be in need of great mercy, well, guess what? You can stockpile mercy for yourself, which James says overcomes, triumphs over judgment. You can stockpile that by showing mercy. You won't have mercy on that day if in this life you show none. But if in the next life you show mercy, oh man, you'll have so much mercy given to you by God as he measures your life up against that law of liberty. Think about what it's like to be new to a church, new to a small group, a new believer in an established group of uh, believers or churches. How would you want people to interact with you? How would you want them to make decisions about you or to, to judge you? And so to treat others in the way that we would want to be treated builds up this mercy in that day of judgment. I believe that the hypercritical, judgmental, partial pers person has much to fear on that day. But those who extend grace, it will be a wonderful day in their lives. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.